Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Freelance writer, player of games, writer of Roger Quarter videos, and at tabletop role playing aficionados. Welcome to aficionados. I'm one person aficionado. Welcome to the Thursday edition by Bible Behind the Scenes DM only live stream crafting Icewind Dale, which I build right and prepare for our next session of Rhyme of the Frost Maidens. <laughs> You're playing characters of all Robin, Frey, Celeste, Edmund, or Thimbleweed. This is not the right stream for you, but for the rest of you, welcome. There will, of course, be spoilers. We stream our DD sessions live. Every Friday, you can watch all of our sessions and reviews here on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Rogue Watson and join our official Discord server with invite link in the description below. If you would like to support the channel, please check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. For our campaign, we use Roll20.net, and for streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. And I realized I forgot to add uh, my latest patron, platinum patron, Gene, to the friggin' patron list. Let me fix that real quick, if you'll allow me to do that. It has been... Uh, it's been a week. I feel like my entire news cycle has been just dominated by the OGL news to where, like, I'm going to have to make a video about it. And I usually don't do those kind of videos, like the hot take stuff or the latest news. I pretty much stay in my lane of doing live streams, of session prep, and then actual plays, and then doing uh, uh, reviews. So it's not the kind of thing I usually do, but I feel like just by staying silent, I'm just being weirdly complicit about everything, and that is definitely not my... Uh, goal that we've had some discussions coming up uh, on the uh, Discord channel, which is a great place to have those kind of discussions. But I definitely share a lot of the anxieties um, that people are feeling and worry towards the OGL 1.1. Especially, I think the biggest problem people have had versus the statement that Watsi made in uh, was it mid December was that they are apparently going to. And again, this is just the leaked thing. They still haven't made an actual full statement yet, which is ridiculous. Um, is the fact that they're revoking basically the old one? Because I, I think at least a lot of people could say, all right, well, if you're going to make new rules for the latest edition, that sucks. But at least we'll always have fifth edition. We can still, you know, just use that if we want to. And then to have them basically say, no, that's actually not the case. We're going to go back and change all those rules. I think that is a lot of what's sticking in people's craw in addition to all the other bad shit that is included in there. So that sucks to retroactively go back and try to revoke things that people thought were kind of in perpetuity. And it's, I'm not, you know, a lawyer. I stay far away from legally stuff. And unfortunately, once he still hasn't actually confirmed anything, but I think their silence towards this big leak has been uh, very much them. It, I mean, it's, it's acknowledgement to us because we just don't have anything else to go on. And they're clearly trying to figure out how to address all this. So uh, I, 
I, I share a lot of the anxiety and worry that people have had. I mean, you have already have major third-party publishers like Cobalt Press and uh, Matt Coville, like, announced that they're going to be doing their own. They're basically doing the Paizo thing, which is what happened the last time uh, Wizards tried to have. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not too keen on my history. I'm sure Wikipedia will be a lot more helpful than I ever would be. But uh, in terms of when they went from third to fourth edition, I think that was also a problem that they ran into. And thus uh, Pathfinder and Paizo basically spun off and, and made Pathfinder. Uh, now it looks like a similar thing is going to happen here, which, gosh, talk about um, not paying attention to history and having it repeat itself. It just seems like a huge bummer to render that situation. Leakies, you can find me online. Yay! Who knew about your crafting analysis? Helping me, huge thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm so glad that can help you. Uh, if you ever run Rhyme, hopefully these can help you. <laughs> Although, uh, and I, I try not to do this, but go off on like topical rants because it, I know it, it sticks certain episodes in uh, you know certain time frames. Um, so occasionally, I'll, you'll talk about little topical things that happen here and there if they're a big deal, but. Gosh, this one has just got to be the biggest thing that's happened. I, I feel like in the D&D community, uh, since uh, as 5th edition has has been around, I think. And by the way, thank you so much for the, the super chat donation. I appreciate that, uh, Leakies. Uh, this has got to be the single biggest thing, I, I, uh, occurrence, I feel like, that has happened in 5e since its inception, right? Like nothing else has dominated the news cycle um, my social feeds, obviously I follow, um, just about every, you know, third because of the, you know, the business I do. So I work with a lot of, uh, those, uh, amazing creators. So my social media is just absolutely dominated by this. The tricky thing is, and what I would really like to know is how much of that is just, you know, the equivalent of a couple people online yelling at each other versus the wider audience. Like how much is this, is this news about the OGL? really affecting the entire community versus just the online community. Cause not everybody is going online, going on the subreddits, uh, you know, following, um, you know, various YouTube people or stuff like critical role, though actually probably most indie people do follow critical role. <laughs> That's probably how a lot of people got into the hobby. Uh, but it, it's still interesting to note, like how much does the general audience care versus the people that I am following on social medias, which are, you know, smaller and larger creators who very much care about this. So I think um, maybe that remains to be seen. But on the other hand, you've got like the, there, I think there's a petition going around that's like uh, on, on, what is it, change.org? It's like 50,000 signatures or something. Now, granted, it costs nothing to sign a digital you know, document, so you can do anybody to do that. But I don't want to discredit the fact that it, it, this is a big deal. It's a big deal that's worth talking about, and it probably needs to have me just sitting in front of the camera just talking about it like this uh, and mentioning it. I've mentioned it before in the Discord chat, and I mentioned it before in my Monday updates for patrons, but I haven't really sat down in front of a, a stream and said something, and that's and that's because I don't really know what my thoughts... I mean, I, I know what my thoughts are. They're obviously horrified and, and anxious about everything, but I just don't know what the future holds. I think we're, we're right now in this moment left with a... At this moment right now, the, the leaked... Um, document, which was uh, fabulously written in a very long article uh, on, uh, I think it was io9, which is a really, really good uh, geek website. Um, and it, it talked about everything about the OGL 1.1 that's been leaked by a reputable source, and Wizards has literally not commented on that. It's been like a week of just everything on fire. Like, everything's on fire right now, and we have no confirmation from them about what's happening. And, and last time, things got 
rumored and leaked in December. And WotC came out with a statement that was like, hey, look, you know, some changes are made. We're going to we're going to look at royalties for the future. Uh, you know, clearly they, they looked at people that were making a ton of money and said, like, we need to take a piece of that pie. Uh, but we're not going to change anything about the original OGL. And then this other leaked me comes out that's basically doesn't say that. And now people are like, what the fuck is going on? And we still don't know. We still don't know. The latest thing is the official D&D Beyond Twitter account uh, said, I think it was two days ago, said, hey, stay tuned. We're going to make an announcement soon or something. <laughs> so everybody's still just in a state of just anxious hand-wringing. And it sucks. It sucks to not have any more information. Uh, I mean, there's even conspiracy theories that like they leaked things on purpose because they wanted to test the waters, which I think is pretty insane. But what do I know? Like, I'm not I'm not sure. So it's it sucks, man, because, you know, we just want to enjoy the hobby. And I think um, a big reason. So my group actually started with actually I'll say this. My group actually started with Pathfinder. I don't know if you knew that we started with Pathfinder back in like 2014. I was not the DM. Um, but I played with, uh, most of the group that we play with now. Um, and we played online with roll 20 and that's, that kind of got the ball rolling. And then, uh, after that I DM shadow run and we play that. And then, um, feeling kind of, this would have been, I don't know what edition of shadow run would have been, not the one that's out now, but the one before that it might've been fifth edition shadow run. Maybe they're on 60 now. Um, and, and I just never grokked the rules for shadow run very well. Um, they were, I mean, fine, but it's, and it's not a D20 system. It's, it's very far removed from what D&D is, but like the whole, uh, whatever their hacking system was that I even forgot. I basically just really liked those video games that, uh, Hairbrain Schemes did and, and really liked the world and everything, but the rules weren't um, that great. And then at that point, fifth edition was brand new and we're like, all right, well, let's try this out. And then kind of the rest is history. The point I'm making is. We're not necessarily married to D&D, although I've built my entire Patreon thing on D&D, and it's got that established community audience, right? And it's got so many assets, so much material there. It's it's the biggest thing around. It's, it's the world of Warcraft. Um, you know, that that one dominated the scene, and that doesn't mean there's other MMOs around, but that one has been the... Don no, now the analogy doesn't work really well because it's been on the downgrade for years now, but anyway... Uh, D&D is clearly the biggest player in the room and it's got the biggest community and it's got um, just the most support and all that. And I'm not adverse to doing other systems like if Cobalt, it's, I love Cobalt. By the way, Empire of the Ghouls, if you're not watching that campaign, you should absolutely watch that. The one I do with patrons because it's fabulous. And um, that's all Cobalt Press with, you know, kind of like what I do with Rhyme here where I, you know, do my own stuff and change things around. But I still like doing the pre-made uh, campaign. And, you know, if they go do their own thing, does that mean I, I go over to that and, and do that system? It's, it's basically like D&D, &D, um, you know, except not in just in name only or not in name only, like the opposite of that. It's, it's everything else but the name. <laughs> uh, or do we do something else entirely? Like, do we look at Starfinder? Do we look at Pathfinder 2nd Edition? Or do we just try and stick it out uh, with D&D with 5e? Or do we go to D&D 60? I don't know. It really sucks to have this. That's part of the anxiety is like, what what goes forward? How does VTT work? Because that's not included in the OGL 1.1. Like, and Roll20 just got included with DM's Gill. Like, what are they doing over there? I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. It sucks. It sucks to have to even talk about this thing. Um, I guess, on the one hand, it needed to be discussed at some point because clearly... Uh, D&D has become kind of a different monster now with, with them even saying like, hey, the OGL was never meant to cover, you know, like virtual tabletop stuff. And 
and other things and clearly like Kickstarter has taken off in a way that I guess they didn't anticipate. So I understand that updates needed to be made to those rules, but boy, this just seems like such a huge scorched earth maneuver if everything in that OGL is is true, the one point one that I, I and and you've and they've already lost a lot of people. Like the, like the fact that Cobalt Press and all those are like, no, we are making our own thing right now. Like we see the writing on the wall, and no matter what, even if they step back from a couple things, like this is still just not going to be uh, a good idea for us to be trying to uh, operate in that nebulous third party atmosphere where you guys can revoke these licenses. You own all of our stuff. Um, it's just not worth it because D and D doesn't doesn't can't they cannot copyright game mechanics. So essentially, you can just, I mean, look at what Pathfinder is to D&D 3.5 or whatever. Like, it's extra, its basically the same thing, and that's fine. Like, you can get away with that, especially if you then create your own world, which Cobalt Press already does have their own, you know, Forgotten Realms-esque world, which is still, it, Forgotten Realms-esque. I mean, fuck off. It's its just fantasy, right? It's a fantasy world. Not every fantasy world is Forgotten Realms, so that's not even a fair analogy to make. Um, so, they like, a lot of these can make their own system, so I guess... It's the best of times and the worst of times. Let's <laughs> see, made a ton of money for me buying books on Roll20. I'm really mad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sucks. It's interesting. Critical Role also started with Pathfinder. You are correct about that. I didn't know that. Um, I, I was not aware of that until I read about that. And apparently, and apparently things that carried over into their campaign actually carried over from uh, Pathfinder as well so I think that was just kind of the weird era too where 4th edition just was not very popular and, and well received I, I don't know anything about 4th edition by the way I, other than the early Ack Inc uh, series which started with 4e we didn't really start we didn't start playing it all until 5e um, I am familiar with the older rule sets because I played video games <laughs> I played Baldur's Gate and I played Number of Nights but there wasn't any as far as I'm aware there wasn't a single video game with 4th edition rules which is ironic because from what I've heard uh 4th edition is supposed to feel more video gamey. And also I'm not opposed to even looking at 4th edition, but I guess I don't I don't even know. I don't know what the future of D&D looks like and it sucks and it sucks that this is going to be hanging over our heads for a long time. Also says 4E was terrible. Bo, you're also a Georgia fan, so I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm st- I'm not still salty. I'm not still salty. <laughs> mustn't mustn't mention that. Uh Sonny Dykes got coach of the year, though, which is pretty cool. That is impressive. All right, so we are going to talk about Icewind Dale, at least a little bit. Um, so we're on the Frost Maiden. Uh, last time on Monday, we actually went ahead and talked about Ethrin and jumped ahead a little bit because it was uh, really helpful for me to refamiliarize myself with the final chapter, as well as uh, I'm currently doing the Roll20 conversion for the Expanded Towers of Magic by Dan Kahn. So that's helping me refamiliarize myself with all that content, which I'm really excited about. There's some great stuff in there. Um, and I won't even use it necessarily by the book because I've changed things from the book as well. The, obviously, one of the biggest changes is the fact that they'll be level 13 instead of level 9, for example. So we'll have to scale some some things up. I appreciate the, the lack of barking. <laughs> I appreciate that. Respect. Respect. Um, God, you guys are gonna be got to be ranked number one going into next season too. Holy crap. Even without your 25-year-old quarterback. Nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be salty. Stop it, Eric. Stop it. <laughs> uh, what are they going to do with Frey the Wendigo? I think that's something we haven't really talked about and something that I was kind of unprepared for. I didn't expect this fight to last 
not only the entire session, but actually beyond that. I think it was an interesting fight. It involved a lot of different dynamics, but the fact that they still have uh, Frey, who is currently rendered unconscious because of the Eyebite spell that Valravan cast, which, boy, they've used a lot of resources already. They are probably going to have to long rest in this dungeon, I imagine, at some point. Now, I would argue they need to take out the vampire before they have a chance at successfully long resting, however, but they just short rested and then had this fight, and now, weirdly, half the team is almost dead, and the other half is, like, fully fresh, so that's kind of an odd dynamic there. I guess some folks just got hit more than others. Then, but we didn't Robin are leaking blood. Um... Also, we need to fix uh, phrase hit points, but I think I'll let Heather do that when she has a chance because she's supposed to be deducting from her temp hit points, which is her Wendigo form and not her actual hit points. So she's actually, uh, what, 40 hit points down? So that leaves her with about 70 hit points remaining. They talked about the different options they had. Um, this was just a unique opportunity where they, they are still in combat, but I actually went ahead and um, turned off their initiatives and turned them off combat because their only hostile enemy is down for approximately one minute. So they have a unique chance to... Um, decide what to do. I'm going to throw this question out to all of you, um, those of you who are DMs, which is probably most of you. Uh, when you have this opportunity where the players have a very limited time, how much do you really keep track of time? Do you try to keep it like... How, how do you keep that clock ticking? Because I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, you know, you want to keep that uh, tension and be like, alright, you guys don't have... You know, you got to make a decision now. Versus... As a DM, and I've mentioned this before, one of my favorite things is when the players have to sit there and make a plan, and the DM just sits back and kind of has a mischievous smile on his or her face, and uh, so I'm, I'm torn because I love hearing all these wacky plans and schemes the players come up with, and yet a lot of times when they're doing that, they're maybe under, you know, unlike a if it's like a heist thing where they have all the time to plan, then that's fine. You could, you know, there's no time constraint there, but. In this case, literally, you've got a player unconscious for a minute, and everybody else is having to figure out what to do. Um, I, it's it's tricky to basically create that ticking clock, and I think, as a DM, to answer my own question, um, I think I just try to read the room. Basically, if they're still like, if if they're high energy and they're talking about, okay, we could do this, we could do that, then I'm probably going to let them just play it out. But if if the conversation is kind of starting to die off, and they're like, well, maybe we could do, uh, you could tell they're kind of either running in circles or. You know, to whatever extent they're not quite um, making a decision or they're being more indecisive, at that point I will probably mention the fact like, okay, you guys got like 20 seconds left or something. Like, you got to make a decision. Uh, that's probably the best way I can think of it. I just remind them uh, under duress, my players are usually good to RP accordingly and not go on forever. Yep, I think that's I think that's the right call. And they are under duress here. So what are their options? They talked about. Um, they talked about. They don't have any good way of restraining her because they know she can at will Misty Step, which is pretty powerful because normally you could just restrain somebody. But the reason I specifically gave her this power um, with her high power to go form is so she couldn't be easily restrained and would be more of a very monstrous threat that could move around and get at people, just cool ambush predator. So they can't restrain her. They don't have a magical spell um, that could restrain her either because they would need some kind of anti-magic thing or some kind of force K or something that's too high level, basically. This is already like a six-level spell that Valravan used to knock her unconscious. And even then only lasts for a minute. So they don't have a way of rendering her inert. They know that the way to get rid of her um, Wendigo form is to basically destroy her, which the equivalent of that is, so when she transforms, in case you're not mechanically aware, she is it's essentially the same as a wild shape for druid rules, where she gains those hit points 
uh, which is about 100 for her high-powered Wendigo form. And then once she reverts to zero hit points, then she reverts back to original form. And any technically any carryover, same as the Wild Shape uh, Druid rules, uh, would affect her real form. But she does revert back to uh, her normal form after that. So essentially the key is just to fight her down. But it's still brutal because, you know, she's just attacking them the whole time. Now, they did mention the fact, like, well, what else we have is, like, while she's unconscious, we all just stand around her, or the equivalent, and then you would be able to um, just attack. And the way I would rule for that is it's equivalent to a surprise round, essentially. The first person would be able to do the advantage of the fact she's unconscious, so you'd get a critical hit, or, like, auto-crit, I think, whatever the rules are for that. But then after that, she would wake up, and everybody else would be able to get a surprise round on her. Now, given the amount of damage the players can do, that might be pretty close to enough um unfortunately a big source of their damage is Frey, and she's not attacking but you've basically got um i mean it'd be cantrips from the two of our spellcasters plus our npc and then our uh thimbleweed and celeste i think it'd be pretty close i don't think they can do 80 like i said i think she's going to be down to about 80 damage when you when we fix the hit points out assuming everybody connects um I don't know if they can do 80 damage between the four of them plus the NPC, but it should be pretty close. So, at, you know, honestly, I think the simplest solution is probably the easiest, which is to, just to do that. Um, and then they can get her back. Uh, otherwise, they can go a little more creative. They mentioned the fact that they can unleash the Bag of Holding uh, with the Flame Skulls, which is definitely an overpowered thing that I allow them. I still am very confused on how the Bag of Holding rules work. If, the, if you all have some more... Um, clear definitions of how it works in there because they mentioned even putting her inside i thought the i was completely wrong i guess on how a bag of holding works is there one in here i can look at uh the bag can hold up to 500 pounds and not exceeding a volume of 64 cubic feet so i assumed it was like just an extra mental extra dimension that they can just shove whatever they want inside and not even worry about it but apparently it does actually have a a limit to it. Um, removing an item from the bag requires an action. If the bag is overloaded, pierced, or torn, it ruptures and is destroyed and its contents scattered in the astral plane. But it doesn't mention the fact that it's got like... It's so esoteric. It's like it doesn't have hit points, it doesn't have AC. Like how is it actually overloaded, pierced, or torn? And then, you know, they mention the fact that, well, if... Can creatures survive in there? Or, um, well, it does say that Breathing creatures at the bag survive to a number of minutes equal to 10 divided by the number of creatures, after which time they begin to suffocate. I believe the flame skulls do not require breathe, though, so I think they're just existing in there. Um, however, then, how does that work? You know, Frey obviously would have to worry about choking at some point, but then when she wakes up, can she just tear the bag out from inside? Like, how does, what does the inside of the bag look like? So that part gets a little wonky. Um, I would just have to start adjudicating rules, I guess, but if any of you have some firm ideas, if you have anecdotes about players... Um, I don't want to say abusing, but using the bag of holding in creative ways. Uh, I will definitely be willing to hear that. So they can either shove her in the bag and then crazy things can happen. Or they can basically unleash the flame skulls inside and let them have their way with Frey. Now the problem with that is it's the classic like, you know, releasing mongoose to deal with a snake. Where now you've got a fucking mongoose to deal with. Um, they're releasing the flame skulls. Now the flame skulls would, I would expect, immediately target, you know, Frey and unleash their fireballs. Something that I don't think the players know is that Frey's Wendigo form is actually vulnerable to fire, which means those fireballs would absolutely demolish her and take her out very, very quickly, especially if all four of them unleashed a fireball, which I would necessarily need to do. 
especially if the first couple end up uh, taking her out. But even if she makes the saves, like it would be a lot of damage to her. Uh, and then they, interestingly enough, they would just have like regular fray with a bunch of flame skulls, and the rest of the party could come in, and then we'd have to battle the flame skulls again. But after they do that, then maybe they can just shove them back in the bag again. That's a good point, Jason. The flame skulls can't get out, and neither should fray. Yeah, because they should be intelligent enough, and I mean they'd be able to like you know cast their spells. I would assume in there, but I, I think they're just for some reason I recall the bag of holdings is kind of like a stasis thing, but it's just it's very I don't know nebulous in how the inside actually works. But by God, there's a whole rule about, hey, if you place it inside of an extra-dimensional space, then you get ripped open a gate to the astral plane. Real question is what you do if they go with yeeting her down the Remoraz whole plan. That was the other thing they talked about, yeah, which is which is a fair plan. Uh, and one that would actually be very beneficial to them. They just don't know it yet. They don't know what's down these boreholes. Um, but if they take her and literally just yeet her down the hole, which is pretty humorous, uh, that would, I guess she's, is she, she takes, every time she takes damage, I think, I'd have to re-familiar myself with how the eye bite spell works. Or no, that was, uh, Tasha's Hideous Laughter, which was a good move by Valen, I will say. Notice how I didn't do that in the beginning because I didn't want to lock down my poor player character. But after it became clear that she was kicking ass and the players maybe need a little bit of help, I was like, all right, Valen's going to do this. This is the eye bite spell. Uh, he called it something else, didn't he? Oh no, he didn't. There it is. Six level spell. Uh, let's see. Last one minute. On each of your turns until the spell ends, use your action to target another creature, but can't target another creature if it's succeeded on saving throw against the casting. Asleep. Target falls unconscious. It wakes up if it takes any damage. Okay, so it just wakes up instantly. Because I think she would take damage just coming down the chute. Uh, well, I've been talking this whole time. I don't even have the freaking thing open, the journal entry for Days of Hunger. Um, I think those rules would actually be in H10, would they be? Let's see. Uh, creature slides down the ice chute, gains enough speed along the way to propel itself into the heated pool at the bottom. Oh, do you not take damage? Maybe you don't. I guess you just slide into the pool and then you immediately start the fight with the Rimuraz, though. Okay. I thought it was, like, going to be a deck save for, uh, taking bludgeoning damage, but I guess it's a well-built slide. Same thing with H22, I guess so. Okay. Um, so apparently I'm wrong. Alright, so instead you just go sliding down if you don't make that strength save, which she would not because she's unconscious. So she would they would be yeeting an unconscious afraid to go down into the pools with the Remorazes, and that would actually be a very good move for them because then they trigger this um, multi-staged boss fight using their high-powered uh, NPC who would basically rip into the Remoraz. Now the Remorazes versus afraid to go, again, she's vulnerable to fire, so that would hurt her pretty bad. Um, and these things do partial fire damage when they attack, and she's not raging while she's afraid to go, so she would be taking full damage, she'd take damage every time she attacks, so I don't think she would actually fare too well one-on-one -on -one versus a Remoraz, but then presumably the rest of the party can come in after her and help out, um, and I think if they, in fact, if we're going to assume they're going to come in H22, we might need to restock this room or change it up, because my original plan was if they were coming down the left side, uh, I think as written, there's two juveniles 
the thing says actually H23 Remoraz Nest. Two young Remorazes in this one. And then I believe Mama is in H24 with another young one. And so the way I changed it was I turned one of the young ones into an adult uh, just to scale up this encounter. But I could put both young ones here in this pool, which was as written. And then the difference is we've got two adults in here. The bummer is these guys are not very fast. So the adults, this would actually be a bit of a separated fight to make it all bit end up being easier for the players. I don't think adult Remoraz is... They have a speed of 30 feet and a burrow of 20 feet. Um, unless I ruled that there was already maybe tunnels going between underground, then I could have them... Basically, the thing I don't want to do is have it, like, surge up there, lumber forward, like, to here, and then not do anything and just get pelted. That would kind of suck. Um, but it might be worth doing if there's still the babies in there. Basically, after that first round... They would definitely be aware because the tremor sense would instantly alert them. We have a tremor sense of 60 feet. So as soon as this fight happens, uh, the adults would go ham. But then we've got one I've got down here. I mean, technically, they're anywhere I want them to be, right? It's the DM loading zone. Um, but the bummer is with their speed, it would take them presumably another round or two. But I could break it up. I could say, okay, round one. This is if she gets yeeted down. Um, she hasn't taken any damage yet, so still unconscious. These things would immediately rear up and probably get to attack at the equivalent of a surprise round because she'd still be unconscious. And then she would wake up and they'd have a normal fight, in which case everybody else up above could maybe roll for initiative, even though all they do is hear the sounds of things happening. And then after that first round, this one maybe will reach them. And I could have this one go on land, I guess. It'd still be, what I say, 30 feet normal? 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Um, they don't have any range attacks. I think they just have their basic uh, bite attack, and I believe it's a 10-foot range. So I did get to use Remorazes earlier in this campaign as one... Or no, I didn't use one. I used one plus, like, two or three young ones, I believe, for the boss fight a couple levels ago. So it's kind of the same thing here, but it's just in the middle of a dungeon, and now there's going to be two adults you're going to deal with. That's yeah, one with a 10-foot range. So that one might not be able to attack when it first gets there. But I could use the layer actions, which I enjoyed using before. I think I... You know, if I put them in the... Not put them in here. I probably should. Do they have a spot for layer actions? Bonus actions, reactions, legendary actions. Here it is. Okay, I did put it in here as mythic actions, but mythic actions don't show up. Oh, it's there. Okay. Technically not a mythic action, it's a layer action. Unfortunately, my formatting did not keep either. That's a bummer. Was it just... can't even edit it. Man, that's not a grid UI for that then. No way to put layer actions on here, huh? That's weird. I guess I could put them as... Legendaries, or just have this window open. But this is the idea. Uh, while the Remoraz is alive on Layer Actions Initiative 20, um, either Geyser Blast of Steam, fire out an area, they have to make a save for fire damage, Stalactites fall from the ceiling, they have to make a save for... I would bludgeoning, probably be piercing damage. 
I guess it depends on how sharp they are. <laughs> it could just be chunks of ice falling down. And then steam rises around the Remoraz, obscuring it to anyone more than 10 feet away and imposing disadvantage on attack rolls. Uh, basically to anybody who is in range trying to shoot at it. But that adds a little bit more to the fight. The bad thing is I've got two Remorazes here, so I'm not sure. Typically layer actions is involved when you've got one adult, so I don't know which one would actually be benefiting from that particular ability. But that would be a good option for them. They just don't know. And it's a very risky one to, like, trigger a whole other room in the dungeon uh, before they're aware of what's in that room while they've still got, the, you know, while players are still injured and they're just licking their wounds out of that. And you could have Tekalele make another appearance here just to continue his absolute pain in the assness, especially when they throw Frey down and they're starting to make their way down there. I could... You know, hidden role for Tekalele and have him come out again, which would be pretty funny as a way of just saying, hey, you guys still haven't dealt with this fucking vampire. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird character sheet. Uh, fluke in Roll20, there's not a section for uh, layer actions. I think it's because technically, if you look at all the stat blocks in 5e, they actually don't have layer actions in the literal stat block. They always mention it kind of in the description as its own like bullet point subheading section. Like legendary actions, mythic actions, all those things are. Um, included in that physic in that stat block sidebar looking thing, but layer actions I don't think ever have been. They've just been mentioned in a like paragraph preceding it. In my tomb campaign, I had a PC get to zero HP in Malar's throat. Party had no healing available. Guess I allowed moving a PC in a bag of holding to a temple. Ah, but uh, there's no air in there. <laughs> so that's the tricky thing is like, yeah, how far do we take those rules? Unless they were a Warforged or a... Is there anything else they can't breathe air? I don't, I'm not actually aware. So that would be pretty exciting if they threw it down there and started this Remoraz fight. Because at this point, I'm not even sure we'd get this Remoraz fight. I think it's a good one. The players are just so damn wounded after all this. The crazy thing is, at, I mean, even if I have them, you know, have to take a Lele Jack with them, if they explore more of this cavern, they find another borehole going down deeper, they might be like, well, it's it just, it, all bets are off basically where they're going to go from there. Because this whole time I'm thinking they're going to explore this upper right corner of the map. Um, and that's where I'm most prepped in terms of them dealing with all the little vampire threats and the thing in the ice and the librarian and all the shit that's over on this right side of the map. But then they could totally throw a wrench in my initial prep work and end up going, throwing, eating her down the borehole, dealing with the Remorazes and exploring this whole giant ass room in the middle. And now you've got all these other boreholes going different directions. I mean, now you have to maybe even deal with the drow if they end up going uh, down this left side too, which is my least prepared section, which, holy crap, I might have to deal with that. Thankfully, I do think if we do the Remorize thing, that's probably going to be an entire session. That was the case before when we fought the boss fight. So I would imagine that's going to take up the most amount of time, but then I'll at least know where we go from there. Guarding the bag, assuming that the skulls can't get out, it's because the bag is sealed shut. That takes a black void until open. Also use the DM guide object ACNHP. Magic though, right? It is magic. It never says it has HP or AC, but it just says it can be torn or broken or overloaded, which is why that worries me. <laughs> it's a magic item that has no stats, and yet it can be uh, torn somehow. But yeah, I do like that, and that's how I pictured it. Basically, if you're inside of it, you're in like a black void of nothingness. It's not, it's not like you're inside of a sack, like a fucking sack that you can just break your way out of. That's never how I pictured it. A totally different way. Yeah, probably. 
Maybe they'll drag her ass over to where the vampire thing is and just leave her there and let her wake up. And maybe the maybe the vampire will come sniffing at her and um I wonder if the vampire would know like how much evil and wrongness does the Wendigo give off? Or the vampire would be like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I want to fuck with this thing. Um but that that could be a, a thing they do too. I feel like that's Weirdly, one of their best moves is they basically try and actually, you know, you don't necessarily want to aggro the rest of the dungeon before you're ready for it and you're injured from a previous fight. And yet you've got an opportunity where you've got this just uncontrollable PC who's beefed up and has extra hit points. So you're kind of at an interesting situation where it's like, well, maybe we can kind of like shove them into the next dangerous room and then run or, you know, run back and shut the door. Technically, it's a good strategy, but of course, I have all of the knowledge of where they should do that and exactly how well that works and they have none of that all they do know at this point that the vampire has consistently um retreated into this eastern room i have i've repeatedly pointed that out and told them like this area is where the vampire keeps retreating to so they at least know that much information oh we forgot to mention i did do a playful thing with um my Wraith uh, boss, whenever he actually was destroyed, I had him kind of turn into a more ghostly form and, and run uh, in this direction. And the reason I did that is so the players might follow that and be able to get some of that treasure that's currently lurking um, up here, which uh, confusingly is... I wonder if I could use the window effect. What, what does a window look like um, for the PCs if I draw a window here? Does it, does it show up as a proper window? Which a window is something they can... Can you open a window? Let's actually play with the window a little bit. Okay, you can. Because this is supposed to be ice, but they're supposed to be able to see through it as well. Make a, This is a really cool thing that Rule 20 has added. Where you can do doors and windows, which I've been able to play around uh, a little bit with. And it, it instantly, basically it fixes the problem of having to constantly make lines and move the lines around. You can just click buttons, which is really slick. Closed and open. Let's see. Let's grab Edmund. He's right there, if we remember. Let's see what that looks like. So currently it's not blocking any line of sight. I think all the win so a window I think is always going to be open. Probably just going to block his movement, right? Of course, as a DM, I can... Oh, look, it actually does do it. Okay. So that's what a window does. I'm literally... I'm. It's like an invisible wall. But you can see. You just can't take your token and move through it. Whereas if I would made it a door, uh, which I did do with the thing in the ice, um, that allows you to actually turn off and on line of sight, which is really helpful. Okay, so that's I guess that's kind of what I wanted to do, which was let them see it, but not be able to move through it necessarily yet. Although it doesn't matter because you can kind of see all the way through it anyway. Do a window. And it's kind of pointless because, I mean, they've got enough tools and things to be able to get uh, through this without any problems. Unless, again, they haven't taken down the vampire yet, and I guess he could keep jacking with them. Although at some point it just gets tedious. Like, all right, dude, leave us alone. 
Alright, so in theory, you can still see, but you're stopped each time. So if I click this and click open, now I can pass through it, and I'm stopped on this one. Okay. That's relatively cool. Just so you can stop players from moving their tokens in too fast. And it might even be like, they're going to think it's a bug or something. Like, I can't move through here. I was like, that's right, you can't. What I don't know is if it shows up with this little window symbol. And if that's visible on the token layer to the players. I assume it is, so that they can clearly see what's windows and what's doors. <laughs> yeah. And then locked, I assume. Actually, I don't know what that means. That just means they can't maybe click it and only I can click it? Because I actually don't know if the players can that as well. I better lock these windows. <laughs> um, but the idea was to kind of lead them to the fact that there's... I can delete this penis mop that's on the map as well. Picked up the mop, damn it. And they can get some treasure there. So, what is it, H15? I Actually, I think I kept the treasure as written... Uh, beyond the walls of the ice, beyond three walls of ice. I guess I could block line of sight a little bit, but. It says the walls of ice are thick enough to be opaque. Which opaque does mean you're not supposed to be able to see it. Maybe I should use doors instead of windows. I guess I could. Because opaque is the opposite of translucent, right? It means you can't see through something that's opaque. They can have to be opaque. Characters can break through them. Yeah, so maybe I should use doors. 13, 18 hit points, which I'm not... Um, it's no point in counting that. Just let them break through it. I probably should have done that from the beginning, though, because I think they might have already been able to see some of this. Okay, so let's actually delete these and turn them into doors instead. And that would actually block line of sight more appropriately. And then I assume the secret door means they can't see the door icon. This is all kind of still new to me. I haven't I haven't I've been playing around with them on my end, but I haven't used them in um in the field as it were. Thus I don't know what it looks like to uh players. It'd be a more interesting situation if the players were under any kind of duress, but and uh I'm kind of breaking it. And they can use that drill bot I gave them for all I care. It doesn't really matter. I guess they don't know what's on their side. They could be monsters or something, so there's always that kind of bit of anxiety. Always be monsters. If it's not locked, they can click on them to open or close the token. Don't have them to see as well. Okay. So then I assume secret means it does not even show up on the map. It's just a blocked, like, dynamic lighting site. Well, I might actually keep it as a visible door. That way, maybe they know it's... It's like the video game equivalent of um, having, like, uh, like, a broken chunk of wall that you know you can get through. Like, video games do a very good job of this, where they, very, they highlight um, sections that are more interactive than others. So it's, you know, it's not just background art. Like, if it's... Um, the equivalent of like an uncharted, like if that's a a place I can handhold on and grapple to, then that's always going to be you know highlighted in some kind of yellow or something. 
Um, in this case, I'm telling the people, hey, this is a part of ice you can technically get through. And some of you have mentioned in previous streams, like, well, couldn't they take the drill bot and just start drilling through holes and making their own paths? Yeah, they fucking could. Um, of course, they, you know, they don't know where to go and and how that would work, but uh, I would absolutely let them do that in, in a lot of these areas. This, this, this would be the dungeon to do it on, frankly. Um, and if they want, if they knew certain routes and things and they wanted to get different directions, they could do that. To avoid certain things, of course, that would still be noisy as hell in terms of ambushing people, but um, you absolutely could do that maneuver. So yeah, I like keeping that visible. So now, if you go in there, it should be blocked, which it is, but you can see there's a door there, and then they can ask about it. And what I can do is literally show, like, the ghostly figure, like, looking around scared and, like, running through... You know, to kind of really pinpoint to the players that, like, hey, there's something going on over here. And they can just sit there and drill through it. And then the idea, oops, I put the wrong one, is that there's just treasure back there. Uh, beyond three walls of ice in the northernmost cyst is the frost-covered skeleton of Dracareth, clad in a mantle of spell resistance and surrounded by the rotted remains of six ancient leather-bound spell books that are no longer legible and a cracked crystal ball that is no longer magical. Basically, he looted all of the dead uh, wizard survivors that had become the shadows. And uh, because of all that, I guess he turned into a wraith. I don't know. Clutched in the dead mage's hand is a staff of charming fashioned out of shardolins suffused with evil netherese magic. Ooh, you know, I could add my shardolin thing to it then. Even though, assuming Valrobin uses it, I don't think there's any way he can fail. Because fuck all those abilities that say, hey, you literally can't roll less than a 10. It's like, well, fuck, okay. <laughs> You're just always going to at least partially succeed on this particular stat. That, I will say as a DM, that's actually really annoying. Because there are times where I, you know, I, I want to reward the player for doing, you know, good role playing or doing a cool thing. And there's other times where I'm like, all right, roll me a, a dice. Roll, roll, you know, let's see, let's leave it up to your modifiers and your dice roll. And when I do that to specifically Valravin doing a charisma check... That's like me saying, well, you're going to succeed this. Unless I put the DC at 20 or above. Well, even then, what is his? What is the worst he can roll? We're going off a rant now. So he's got this ability, and I, I think there's another equivalent of this on a, another character. Um, it's either intelligence or dex or something, where they also can't roll worse than what that is. In fact, I think Chris had it in Doom of Annihilation. Somebody remind me of that. Did Mannix have it? What is it called? I want to say it was Silver Tongue. Yeah, when you make a persuasion or deception check, so technically not all charisma checks, but those two, you can treat a d20 roll of 9 or lower as a 10. The worst you can roll is a 10 on those two checks. And he has a plus 13 for performance and a plus 9 for deception. So he's basically not ever going to fail a... Or sorry, persuasion, not performance. He is a plus 13 for persuasion. He's basically never going to fail any persuasion check because he can't do worse than a 10. He can't do worse than a 9, so he's always going to do a 10. He's got plus 13. He's always going to do at least a 23 on persuasion, which is just about, I mean, technically you could set things at a 25, I guess, if they were extremely, very nearly impossible. And then he's got a 19 for deception. So that, I will say, is annoying as a DM because it's it's basically, unless we're talking like really, really impossible shit, um, there's just no way to fail, and that sucks. Because and he's even mentioned the fact that oh, I like rolling. You know, when when you give me a chance to roll and show it off, I like doing that. And I was like, yeah, but 
there there's no you're never gonna fail <laughs> you know it's not like unless it's literally a dc 25 in which case there's a minuscule chance of you failing um it's basically me saying okay you're just gonna succeed at that which is, is not the intention there so I, I think that's a shitty thing that's in the rules that players get that ability i mean i get the intent behind it but i feel like the execution should have been if you roll worse than this then you maybe automatically get a re-roll i think is how i would have balanced that it's like a it's like a lucky but even better it's you know because lucky only uh triggers on a one and if you get a lucky that triggers on literally a one through nine that's pretty huge you would, you would essentially give yourself um advantage on every single time you roll less than that that would at least give me a fucking chance <laughs> as a dm but this auto like yeah auto 23 on a persuasion like man all right you're just gonna be able to do it that kind of sucks and you know he's built his character for that so that's fun but there's still needs to be some opportunity for failure a little bit like this D. &D. <laughs> so that's annoying all right rant over for that one um, but I was going to look at the Staff of Charming and maybe actually add my Shardlin rules on there because I did, I do have some Shardlin stuff on there. And the other thing I ran into, the fact that Valravin, technically every time he misses with his gauntlet is supposed to roll against uh, short-term madness. But because he's got such good charisma save, he's also like always going to make that save. Um, I think it's only like a DC 10. What does this save? He's got a plus nine. <laughs> so he can't fail. He's always going to make a at least a 10 uh, on a charisma save. So he literally, I think, cannot fail and trigger that short-term madness thing. Unlike uh, Thimbleweed and Edmund, who still can't, because I set the DC so low. It's like a DC 10. So I guess my problem is I didn't necessarily scale that up. Uh, I got to go down to where I put the shardle and stuff. So it's all of these rules, basically. On a miss... You have to make a DC 10 at Charisma Saving Throw or suffer a form of short-term madness to the end of your turn. The problem being, he literally cannot fail that save. So that's... And maybe that's just like, well, you've got a 20 Charisma and you're proficient in Charisma, so you're just really good at wielding this particular weapon. That wasn't my intention, and it just... Yeah, he, he basically got... I'm not actually sure he's still attuned to the damn gauntlet at this point. He might have switched off of it. I can't remember. Uh, so the bummer is now I'm looking at it, the Staff of Charming. I may have to, if I'm going to use that same thing, I may have to actually up the DC. Uh, otherwise, I was going to keep these treasures pretty much as is, because both of these are very good items that the players could definitely use. Uh, they have been overloaded. I realize I'm a DM who is very generous with magic items, but that's what I like. I don't like that uh, 5e doesn't... Um, isn't necessarily balanced to give your players a lot of magic items the way earlier editions were because 5e characters are just so powerful out of the gate. Uh, but I love loot. I come from the school of uh, the Diablo school of loot, the Borderlands school, the, uh, I don't know, Destiny, in, insert game here that is a loot fest. Like, I love all those things. I love loot. <laughs> uh, it's It's the reason for adventuring in a lot of cases. And I like giving it out. And uh, the attunement thing is... It's a good balancing factor, I guess. The players are obviously all maxed out on a tuned item, so it becomes like, uh, well, can we use this or not? I will say it's useful to have extra magic items when you get to Aetherin, uh, one of the towers of abjuration, in order to progress and get that um, line of the line of the octad that you need. You actually have to literally destroy a magic item on the Anvil of Disjunction in order to complete that tower. 
So that would be a pretty hefty cost for a lot of parties, but I believe we already at this moment have a few extra, like I think we still have like a Ring of Warmth lying around. Like there's a few extra um, magic items the players have that they're just not attuned to or not really using that they could destroy. And the ability Manix would have had was Reliable Talent. A rogue class feature unlocked at level 11. Yeah, as the Inquisitive subclass gave him the mechanic at third level with the feature Ear of Deceit. Yes. So I had to deal with that bullshit. So twice in a row he's had that bullshit thing. Which is that, was that like if you rolled worse on an investigation or something? It, it did, I don't remember it coming up as much as being able to literally have an insane persuade. And, and it's just that his character also, like literally a plus 13 at this point, is ridiculous. So anyway, the two items, Mantle of Spell Resistance, uh, Advantage on saving throws against spells where they're cloak. That's awesome. Like that is really, really handy to have. Kind of a boring thing because it's a passive and it only works defensively and only when you have spells cast on you. But my goodness, so many spells, especially at this coming level, are nasty pants. And that could be a really, really good effect. Or the players could be like, eh, it's not really that fun. We're not, no one's going to use it. So, their choice. But then the Staff of Charming. If I could add my little uh, qualifier on there. I may have to look at a different one that involves saves, which I think is going to be not a weapon, but something. Bands of Binding or the Headband or something. Um, this is also requires attunement. It has a stupid class restriction. Um... I could eliminate that or just say, well, I guess our bard's the only one that has a chance of attuning to it. Weirdly, this is a team that's just not very uh, arcane-focused. While holding the staff, you can use an action to expend one of its ten charges to cast Charm Person, Command, or Comprehend Languages from it using your spell DC. Here's a Dark Horse pick. They could give extra items to Valin. I just realized that. Um, next time they rest, I should have Valin prop. I hadn't even thought about that, having an allied... Uh, NPC, be able, you know, equip attuned items, but there's no real rules for that, but I, I wouldn't let her do it for sure. <laughs> that hasn't come up. I, I should write me a note on that. that do that right now. Let's see. in attuned magic items, question mark, in case they have some extras lying around. Okay, I'll take uh, literally, like, people just, like, juggling these magic items. She's like, I've got... Because she get she had two of them, and she gave them to the party. She had bracers of defense, and I think like a wand of magic missiles or something. And the party are using those magic items, so I think tit for tat would be pretty nice. Insight, okay. Um, also, you know, came up a good amount of times, but I guess it didn't maybe bother me as much then. That was the first time I'd run into it, though. The staff does have, what does it mention? Yeah, it actually has a role-playing flaw. Which is funny as hell because I don't think this would change Robin's personality that much. Anyone who attunes to the staff gains the following flaw which supersedes any conflicting personality trait. I like to give orders and expect it to be obeyed. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's basically already Robin, I think. Um, <laughs> that's just pretty funny. I do like the ones that give you those little like roleplay flaws. It's pretty fun. Uh, so you can cast Charm Person Command... Or comprehend languages uh, using your spell save DC. Those aren't super big spells. Those are all, I believe, first level spells. Comprehend might be a second level. Nope, still first level. Okay. So that's, you know, nothing much, frankly. Uh, I don't think you can even upcast them. It necessarily says you can upcast. Uh, comprehend language is actually just a really useful one to cast with charges. Although it's already ritual. You understand the literal meaning of any spoken language you hear. 
Um, the big thing is, though, if you're holding the staff and fail a saving throw against an enchantment spell that targets only you, so any kind of specific crowd control thing, you can turn your failed save into a successful one. Basically, you've got legendary resistance once per day against a very specific subset of spells. And if you succeed on the save against an enchantment spell that targets only you, with or without the staff's intervention, you can use your reaction to expend a charge and turn the spell back on its casters if you had cast the spell. Very, very cool. Uh, limited use, and I would definitely have to remember if somebody has that power to both let them show that off while also making sure my boss doesn't get locked down by their own <laughs> CC spells. Although they could just use legendary resistance, I guess. But that is probably the way cooler effect than actually casting these spells. Uh, the staff regains its charges at dawn. If you expend the last charge, you have to roll a d20 on a 1. The staff becomes a non-magical quarter staff. I could uh, honestly see them, though, looking at that, looking at the spells, looking at the very specific thing, and being like, all right, well, that's not that good. Which, again, I wouldn't feel too bad about this because it's not like an item I bespoke created for them. These are just both items in the Dungeon Master's Guide. They're actually designed, um, written in the book to give them these items. So they're basically designed for a level 9 party. So I'm not scaling them up for level 13 because I think they just have a lot of items at this point that I don't necessarily need to throw more really, really good, like, um, you know, specific, like, hey, this is what your character always dreamed of item. I, I hope everybody's kind of got the equivalent of those uh, by now. So these are just kind of some extra things. And like I said, it's useful to have at least one extra magic item for when the players uh, go into the Towers of Abjuration, at least. But I could add on there, the bad thing is if I add the Shardolin effect of uh, if they make the save DC, then you have to make the madness thing. Uh, I feel like then nobody would use it, but I, I kind of still have to because it's made out of Shardolin, and I've kind of written myself in the corner about that. Uh, so this was, if a target succeeds on a spell save while using this item, you must succeed on DC 10 charisma saving throw. This one was the Crown of Madness spell. Not another one, I just had it be the short-term madness. Attack roll misses. Is that the only one I had with a save? With the amulet. You know, DC 10 charisma saving throw or suffer an effect from the short-term madness table. Kind of like using that madness table because I feel like that was more flavorful. So I can just I could just add that qualifier on there. Let's see. Spell save DC. I guess it just because comprehend language doesn't have a hostile thing, but charm person and command, they both have to make saves against that, right? Yeah, it makes a wisdom saving throw. This one, I believe, is the same thing. Command is the one word thing, yeah. Kind of if somebody makes the save, if somebody makes the save, then you would have to suffer the short-term madness. Um, seeds on a spell. Target succeeds on a spell save. When using this item, you must succeed on DC. Mm, I could scale that up. Almost tempted to be like plus your profile. What I should have done, that would have been clever, is have it be a scaling charisma save that you have to worry about. Let's make it a DC 13. I don't want to go 15 necessarily. Or write with that down. Suffer a form of short-term madness. Uh, 
short-term madness to the end of your next turn. So we'll add that qualifier on there. And then the hidden effect will actually be the fact that you gain Dracarith's flaw, I guess. So with that qualifier, they'll definitely look at that and be like, ah, that's not worth it. <laughs> Which is fine. I wouldn't feel too sad about it. This is not meant to be a nicely loot-filled dungeon. In fact, I still um, technically don't have any loot in the Vampire's Den either. I feel like I should. You know, it would probably be like monetary loot versus magic item loot. Because um, as written, the Vampire has no loot whatsoever. The whole point of just going after the Vampire and crawling away through all this stuff is just so he stops fucking with you. Just to clear him out. But it, it feels very weird not to have him have literally any um, loot whatsoever. I could give him like some kind of charm or something maybe when they do defeat him maybe they gain advantage against psychic hauntings or something i don't know i could do something like that they've been given hope and emboldened after defeating the vampire or if they ever do i don't i don't know at this point it's it's still up in the air um depending on where they go and what they do from here it's all i can do is try to prep all these different areas and try to be prepared and then yeah come up with whatever crazy scheme and shenanigans that they're going to try to do uh, we are definitely, I feel like, crawling at a, stay with me now, a glacial pace uh, through this dungeon to where I'm going to start getting really, really ahead, which is a great problem to have. And I think uh, we already talked about Etherin primarily on Monday's crafting stream, and I think I'll be doing that again the next couple of weeks unless things really change um, on where they go. Like if they go to the Ramaraz Cave and then end up going not in the basically the upper right corner or right side, then I'll need to prep more Caves of Hunger, but... Um, I think we'll continue to prep more and more for Etherin and really try to get ahead of things because there's a lot of, uh, basically all the expanded towers I have to add in there and, and change some stuff up uh, in Etherin because there's a lot of changes I'll have to make. Unlike Caves of Hunger, which I feel like even with the changes I'm making, it's not that much. I feel like this is probably the closest to the book I've been running the last couple areas. In fact, the biggest changes I'm making is just locking off... Um, some of these areas because it's just too big and kind of has some dead end stuff in there that I don't really care about. All right, I think that is going to do it for this Thursday edition of Crafting Ice Wheel. Now, if you enjoy the content, please do check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. Shout out again to uh, Leakies for the super chat. I appreciate that. And shout out to all my patrons. Platinum patrons, Joe, Will, Thomas, Stan, William, Brandon, Genocider, David, Eclectic, Role, Player, Role, Christopher, Brian, William, David, Corey, Goa, 1337, Matthew, Big Nut, John, John, Infernus, Chris, Scott, and Gene. And gold patrons, RPG, Paper Crafts, Preboy, and Yuma, Marcus, Dead Lizard, Lion, Sam, Lumpy Spuds, Jerome, Nathan, Fasica, Tortoise, Scott, Refus, Carolyn, and William. Thank you all very much for your support. If you are a Platinum patron who has signed up for the Patreon D&D game this week, I will see you tonight. And for everyone else, I will see you tomorrow.